So we've been asking uh, all kinds of different people to lead this class. And I asked a young man uh, today if he would lead the class. I won't give you his name. He chickened out. He chickened out on me. And so we need to encourage our young people to be willing to take opportunity. And maybe I shouldn't have let him chicken out, but he really was not ready to do it. So he did chicken out. But that's okay. He'll have another chance in the future to do it, and we'll let someone else take it next week for sure. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll get into, uh, we're going to start Second Peter today. So let me lead us, and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for the privilege we have today of looking at a portion of Scripture. And Father, we pray that you bless us, that as we do, that you will teach us. We pray that your Spirit would be present with us, that your Spirit would speak through your Word, and that our lives would be transformed by what we see today. We pray through Jesus. Amen. So I mentioned a moment ago that we had a young man who, who uh, chickened out on me. I'm so grateful uh, last week that Greg Lidke did not chicken out on me. <laughs> not that I would expect him to do so. But I want, you to, I'm, I want you to make sure that you encourage Greg and tell him that he should be teaching a lot more because he does a great job. And then we'll, we'll ask Greg to teach in the future, and he'll say yes, because he was so encouraged by all of you to teach. He really does a great job. I told him last week, I said, Greg, you have a gift. You have a gift for this. And he does, for sure. All right, I'm in Second Peter chapter 1, but before I get there, let me just say a few things about Second uh, Peter in general. For example... Second Peter is definitely designed to help Christians grow. We're going to see that in just a moment here. There are things that, that Peter specifically says along the lines of growth, and it's clear that he doesn't think that your average Christian should be stagnant in their faith or just staying at the same place. We need to be moving forward. So one of the things that I hope you see in the next few weeks here as we look at Second Peter is this notion of growth, and I hope that you take it seriously in your own life and think, wow, I, I need to be growing because this, this is what Peter was expecting, that we would be growing in Jesus. And we need to take uh, kind of specific opportunity to do so. And then if, if First Peter was about persecution, which I think a good portion of it was, and you might remember that, then a good portion of Second Peter, kind of along the same lines, is about false teaching. Um, and there are some definite specific challenges that the church was going through that Peter felt like he needed to address. And there's actually a connection between Second Peter and Jude, in that way, if you were to read Second Peter, which is you know very short, three chapters, and then if you were to read Jude, which is even shorter, you would find a real strong connection there between those two letters, probably addressing the same kind of circumstances. So Second Peter is is definitely kind of oriented towards some false teaching, in addition to helping Christians to grow. And then there is a challenge in Second Peter. Regarding end times, 
And some, like, the, the New Testament is fairly unclear about what's going to happen at the very end. There's a, a lot of speculation. And part of the reason that we speculate so much is because we just don't have tons of information that's spelled out in terms of what's going to happen. But it's interesting that Second Peter actually takes uh, several verses to talk about that, what's going to come and the destruction of the earth and, and all of that. So I'm not going to get there today, of course, but somebody will eventually. And when they do, you're going to have a chance to see some of the things. We wonder what's going to happen at the end. And Second Peter does give us some inclinations, some kind of clues into what's actually going to happen at the end. Now, I don't know how far we're going to get today. I've only got a PowerPoint that takes us down through verse 11 today. We'll see if we get any farther than that. We could. Um, and if we do, I'll have a chance to talk about Scripture and what it is in the second part of the lesson today. But we're going to start today talking about these verses 1 through 11 and some of the things that are in here. So let me read this. And uh, and then we'll see what Peter has to say. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. And for those of you who have, were in the first service, this whole notion of forgetting that we have been cleansed from our past sins is, I think, a huge problem in the church. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will, be receive, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we'll start with this today. We'll see how far we get, and if we get further than this, great. The first thing I want you to see here is that there is an amazing balance in Peter's self-perception. But I want you to tell me what it is. What's the balance? Look at the first couple of verses here. And what's, what's the balance whereby Peter views himself? What do you see? Yeah. And, and when you say privilege, what specifically do you mean? Because he... Yeah, like he, uh, he talks about himself in a way that lets you know that he has some authority in the church. Peter's an apostle. But he describes his apostleship with this word slave or servant that's right along next to it. And so he says, I am a servant and I am an apostle. 
And Peter's got both. And it would seem to me like that, it makes an awful lot of sense that we would look to have the same kind of balance in our own lives. In fact, I would say that if a person doesn't have that kind of balance in his or her own life, that they're really not in a position to to serve in any kind of way, certainly not an authoritative kind of way, in the church. Because that needs to be there in terms of that balance. In fact, I think one defines the other. I would say they both define each other. So it's not just one way, but both ways. Tell me how that is. How can it be both ways that servanthood and apostleship define one another? Okay. Okay. Heather said, if you didn't hear that, that, that the notion of servanthood is to be humble and that that needs to be a strong element within one who's going to serve as an apostle. And I, and I absolutely agree that there needs to be that kind of humility. It's a wonderful statement, isn't it? That Moses was considered the most humble, the most humble man that ever lived. And here he was leading God's people and yet had that kind of humility within himself. Uh, that's significant. So certainly, there's a sense in which servanthood, that attitude of a servant, needs to define what it means also to be an apostle, that you're simply a servant of Christ. But then, this word apostle means not just to be a ruler. In fact, it doesn't actually mean that. The, the word apostle itself means to be sent. One who is sent in the name of another. And so how is it that apostleship then defines what it means to be a servant in Christ? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to be working for Christ. And so the apostle is not only humble, but the apostle is one who is sent in the, in the name of Jesus. And therefore that service that we carry out for him is going to be for him. We are as servants sent in the name of Christ. And so uh, it's interesting. We're, we're going to have a, um, a potluck today for those who lead various ministries in our church. Um, if you, if you want to come and be part of that, you can. Uh, but don't come just because you're hungry. Okay? Because uh, we're going to make you stay for 90 minutes or so after the meal. So just be prepared. But the, but the notion is that we're all called to service in Christ. And that's because we're all sent in his name, or the two work together. So that one who serves in Jesus is one who is sent in his name. And so if you have some kind of ministerial role in our church, some kind of ministry that you serve in, part of what you're doing is not just being a servant, but actually representing Christ and being called to go in his name into our world and to serve others. So these these two definitely balance themselves out, I think, in Peter's self-perception. And I think that's significant. We need to pay attention to that for sure. Another comment that's uh, interesting is that he says, um, what's the specific language here? To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Now, we don't see this language in the New Testament all the time, but we do occasionally see Jesus actually being called God. Um, Romans 9, 5, I think, does this. John chapter 1, verse 1, I think, does this. 
Uh, 1 Timothy 5.16, I think, does this. There are several places where I think the New Testament is actually calling Jesus God. Now, it's interesting because in every case that it does that, there is some kind of problem that actually goes along with the verse. Usually, some question about translation. And so we don't always know exactly where to put the commas. Uh, You know, Greek did not have punctuation. In fact, the original manuscripts that we have in the Greek language for the New Testament were all in capital letters, all run together so there was no space between words, no punctuation, and every, every letter is capitalized. Can you imagine trying to read? I mean, if we were to look at an English text and it was just all capital letters with no punctuation whatsoever, we'd, you'd have a hard time knowing sometimes what words where and where, where do the sentences end? Where does a paragraph start? Like, we would have no clue. And so when we go to translate New Testament Greek, sometimes it's a little bit thorny to know exactly where we should punctuate it in English to make it the best sense of it. And the fact is, is that every case where there's a a clear statement about Jesus being God, it's not as clear as we want it to be because of some kind of question, whether about definitions of words or punctuation or whatever. Now, nonetheless, even though that's the case, I'm convinced that the New Testament teaches that Jesus is God. I think there is really clear evidence for that in the New Testament. And so this, I would say, is properly translated. We may not know exactly where to put the commas because of the Greek, but when it says, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours, I think that that was Peter's intention, that he's trying to make a statement about the divinity of Jesus. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that he did so. And we need to take, I think, take that very seriously. Daryl. Because the word and is in the text. And you couldn't take it out. Well, if and is in the text, then it could refer to God. (laughs) Yes, that's true. (laughs) And that's exactly the kind of situation that we face in in virtually all these passages. Romans 9.5 is kind of the classic one there, where the comma, don't look at it right now, maybe on your own, because I don't want you to get too distracted, but but there's a comma that either could or couldn't be there, and where does it go in Romans 9.5? And the same kind of thing here. Just the question about punctuation. But yeah, they, they couldn't take the and out because the and is in the text. But then could you punctuate it differently and maybe say something else? Well, the fact is you could. But it may well be that Peter is saying exactly as the NIV has this in terms of God being, uh, or Jesus Christ being God. And I realize that some of you could disagree with that. That's a possibility. I do, I, we do have some people in our church who, who don't think that Jesus is, that he should be called God. Okay, that he's the son of God, but he's not God in that sense. Some people would say that. I disagree with them, but um, but there are places in the New Testament where uh, perhaps these clear statements about Jesus being God are, can be questioned. Not by me, though. <laughs> I think it works. <laughs> okay, another thing that I think is significant in this these first few verses is that there is the concept of the faith. And when I say that, what am I setting that apart from? Let 
Like there's the view of the faith as opposed to just talking about faith. And when Peter says the faith, what does that do? Like what is the faith as opposed to faith? Okay, certainly it limits to one. We've got the definite article there and says we're talking about this one for sure. What does that do in, in the context of faiths? Like it limits it, identifies it. It does say that there's one. And, and it actually, and I, I sometimes use this word, and people don't like this word because it sounds so negative. But I think there is an exclusionary kind of force. That there is something exclusive about the elements that represent the faith. So that the faith can't be just anything. And sometimes in our world, we act as though this is the case, that faith can be just about anything. And I'm not convinced at all that it can be. Now, it's interesting because in the sermon today, I'm going to talk kind of in the other direction about freedom in Christ. But again, I, I, you know, I think that there's lots of room in Christianity for balance here. And while we can talk about freedom and how we're not living according to a set of rules, nonetheless, it doesn't mean that there aren't clear statements in the New Testament about what we are to believe and about what our faith represents, so that faith can't be just anything. And so this notion of there being the faith, I think, is significant, and we need to continue to be people who hold fast to the faith, as opposed to not. Is, is this a problem for anybody? Like, like, does anybody wrestle with this? This notion of, of us possessing the faith? Go ahead, Mark. I don't know if I wrestle with the concept when I was doing a sermon. Last night in a small group, we had this conversation as well. It's when we... Talk loudly, please, just so everybody... When we take the concept of the faith and we define it with very narrow parameters, mm. that's where I think we get into trouble. It's not so much that there is the faith. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. If you didn't hear all that, Mark just said that sometimes in defining the faith, we can get ourselves in trouble. Um, and I would say, especially when we try and get particularly specific, and when we are identifying the faith with what happens to be my specific set of specifics. <laughs> so if I'm, if if there are issues that I'm convinced everyone has to be lined up on exactly the way I see them, I think that can become a problem for sure. I think you already talked about that in your sermon. Yeah. I think you're right, David. We did talk about that. But, but it does raise the issue about what right we have or how we can go about actually establishing that there is the faith. Because it's got to count for something. There has to be some content here. We can't just say that the faith is anything we want it to be. We would say that there, and we're going to look at this maybe if we get to the end here and look at the second part of this chapter, but there are some statements in the Bible that seem to be relatively, relatively clear. 
Like if I said to you, we, we may have question, is Jesus God or not? Uh, maybe you wrestle with that one. But if I just said to you, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. That seems to me to be fairly clear, uh, fairly core, and I don't see how you could say, I'm Christian, and not believe that one. <laughs> and so if I'm going to talk about what the faith is, that's going to be on my list. To say that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior. I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to throw that one out and say that something like that is questionable. The issue becomes, what else is on the list and what isn't on the list? Well, I, I think there are I think there are some things that should be on the list. Um, Peter doesn't make the list in this section, and so we're not going to try and define the list today. But he does talk about the faith. And I do think that there's something there that we need to cling to and not let go of. You know, a few years ago, our church went ahead and adopted 12 principles that we said are kind of our core beliefs. Things that if we let go of those, we would cease to be the church that we are. It doesn't say that we have a set of core beliefs that identifies who's Christian and who's not. It doesn't say that. But it does say that if we let go of these things, we would no longer be the same church that we currently are if we were to let these things go. And I'm glad that we have lists like that. I think it's important that people recognize that there is a content to our faith that needs to be adhered to, especially in an age when our young adults and others, of course, come out of our church, grow up, and oftentimes are so challenged as to what it is that they actually believe. Tony, you were going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, but there are some scriptures that shine a light on some of these questions. Mm -hmm. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is a very good one. That that talks about that oneness. Right. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Exactly. Yeah. Right, so... I mean, I don't know what, how else to, to address it, but we need to be cognizant of that, that God throughout his relationship, especially through Christ, has that oneness, addresses that oneness of, uh, that belongs to him. And mm-hmm. I mean, with the other fact that you were talking about earlier, uh, John chapter 1 addresses that. Yeah. In the beginning. Right. Jesus was there with God, and he was... And he was God, God it says, yeah. Yeah. So... The reason I said that there was a question about that one is because the, uh, there, like, if you've spent much time with Jehovah's Witnesses, they challenge John one one in our interpretation of it, and the reason why is because there's no definite article that goes with with the God. Like it says, the Logos was God. It doesn't say the Logos was the God, and so there's no definite article that goes with the God there. Um, but the fact is, there's a very clear reason, if you know something about Greek, for why that's the case and why there's no definite article that goes along with the word God in that context. But, um, but it's still a controversy. I, you know, it's, there's no passage that says Jesus is God that has absolutely no controversy whatsoever. I wish there was. I, now, I think John 1, 1 teaches that Jesus is God, that the word is God. But... Uh, it's not completely without controversy. Steve? I 
Okay. Right. And so it's not like a light switch that just comes on. We all of a sudden we can put it in a box and say, "This is the faith." It's something that we we start with, with our core faith in Christ. Right. Yeah, I agree. That's, I think that's a great point because there are some things that when I was a younger Christian, I might have thought were important or I saw things correctly or whatever. And then I, you know, I, there were some understandings that I grew out of. Uh, you know, I'm a different person today in Christ than I was when I was 15. Um, I remember one time being in a Bible study and explaining to the, the group what I thought uh, a passage out of James 5 meant. Um, and when I, you know, we finished the evening and the person who was leading the group took me aside afterwards and said, you know, I, I don't think that's what James five means. And he showed me this verse and I read it with him and he was exactly right. And I was exactly wrong. And it was, you know, and, and I, I thought I was pretty sure about what James five, whatever it was, verse 10 or something meant. And I was mistaken, you know, go ahead. I just think that's an important thing for us to always remember too in our dealings with each other when we're discussing our faith is realizing that we're all on different points on our journey. Yeah. I mean, maybe we have some insight that our brother doesn't have. And so to try and um, impose something on them in an unhealthy way when they're not there yet, you know, it's just something, an awareness that sure. like, we need to have to maintain a healthy relationship. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I mean, one of the things that happens, of course, is that people who do have an understanding sometimes get a little bit um, gruff or impatient or whatever with those who don't, who aren't there yet. And and we do need to be careful, for sure. There's very few of us who have it all right. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Oh, that's good for sure. Well, another thing that we find in the verses that we've already read today is this notion of divine power that in fact gives us a divine nature, which is very interesting. Uh, again, the whole notion of God working within me through his spirit, uh, I, something starts to happen. And I think that like what Steve was just saying is that there is a gradualness to this. It doesn't happen overnight. Although I do think that there's some sense in which some of it happens overnight. Like I, you know, I think you go from unsaved to saved. I think you go from a person who is not a child of God to a child of God. But even while that happens and you go from having the fleshly nature to a spiritual nature, the spiritual nature certainly develops among us. And there's progress that takes place within the development of the divine nature as we grow, just like what Steve was saying. So we do become different people. One of the beautiful things about all of this, of course, is that there is a real transformation that takes place. We are not in this all by ourselves. Um, for, for years, uh, within Churches of Christ, there was a debate about whether or not the Spirit indwelled us. I don't know if you're aware of this. 
Uh, but it was quite a substantial debate. went on for, I don't know, 50 years or something like that. People wrestled with whether or not the Holy Spirit actually indwells the believer. Uh, some people would say that the Holy Spirit only indwells the Scriptures, but it doesn't necessarily indwell the individual believer. And I'm absolutely convinced that the Scriptures teach that the Spirit indwells the individual believer, that there is a transformation that actually takes place in our natures because the Spirit is within us. And so again, you read Romans chapter 8, and there's this, not just a um, unimplying, but a, a clear statement on Paul's part that the Spirit comes in and that the fleshly nature that was in us ever since the fall is eradicated with time. Um, like some people would really wrestle with whether or not the fleshly nature is completely ever done away with. Well, I think that at least theoretically, it can be. That at least theoretically, even if we wrestle to make this happen, theoretically, the Spirit comes in and transforms that fleshly nature into a new spiritual nature. And without the Spirit... Paul says in Romans 8, we actually don't have Christ without the Spirit doing that within us. So there is a move that takes place from the fleshly nature through God's divine power transforming us into a new divine nature that allows us to be different people with way more power, I think, over sin, for example, than what we sometimes think. Um, one of the difficulties I sometimes have with those who are uh, who are from a Pentecostal tradition, oftentimes they want to talk about all the demons that are present and the challenges where people are uh, demon-possessed still and all those kinds of things. I wrestle with that because Scripture seems to say that I've actually been transformed and changed with the Spirit living within me and that He who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And because he is greater than he who is in the world, I don't have to worry about those things. So I'm actually not very worried that I'm going to be all of a sudden taken over by some demon. Because Christ's spirit lives within me and allows me to actually defeat even those powers of darkness because the spirit is present. Any, any comments about that? Yeah, I think it's possible. Yeah. I think it's, there's no reason for me to think that that's not possible. But I, but I don't think that that's the case with those who've given themselves to Jesus and have the Holy Spirit living within them. The Spirit comes in and he kicks out the demons. The problem, Jesus says, is if nobody comes in, you go in and you sweep the house clean and everything's all nice and tidy but then nothing comes in to fill the space. And what does Jesus say? More come in. Then seven come in and take our presidents. And then you got real problems. And so the Holy Spirit comes in instead and fills us and then kicks out their demon and then there's no room because the Spirit has now filled the house. June? Like, as a Christian, 
Right. Well, I don't think the depression is necessarily a demon, no. I'm... First of all, let me tell you, we're really in your discussion of demons. I wasn't planning on this today. Um, first of all, the one thing I know is that there are no such things as bald demons. Okay? There's never been one. So like, that's not a possibility. You can't be bald and be a demon. That's, that's one of the things I know. Right, David? Yeah. That's one of the true things. Um, but I, but I, I do wrestle with this whole notion of demonology. Um, the, the people in New Testament times clearly took it very seriously. There are parts of the world where they take it far more seriously than we do here in North America. And many people have said that one of the reasons that Jesus, or sorry, not Jesus, of course, one of the reasons that Satan would be doing something in our society differently than using demon possession is because he can't get to us in that way. We don't really acknowledge them or or believe in them, and so they can't have the same kind of impact on us. And so he wouldn't use it as often. But you go into other parts of the world, and there is there are all kinds of things that occur, which we can't explain. And it may be that they're happening because there, that kind of belief allows for that demon to have a power that it wouldn't necessarily have in our world. And so maybe there are demon possessions taking place in different parts of the world than there are here. And maybe on a, on a um, more frequent basis than they would here. Mana? Sorry, one sec, June. Mana? Yeah. What was the first word? Infilling. Oh, an infilling and indwelling. Yeah. Okay, let let me talk about that in a second when we get done with this discussion about about demons, okay? Were you going to ask another question? Would you say the devil was a demon? No. I would say he's the prince of demons, the head of demons, the head of the whole dark world. And I would say that there are those who are under him, Working in ways that bring evil into our world. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And see, I would say that that's possible. I don't know that, like, I'm not sure that there is frequent demon possession. Maybe I can say it that way. I'm not sure that in our world we see frequent demon possession, but I'm not going to say that it doesn't exist. Do I think that Satan works? in very negative ways to draw people away from Christ. Yeah, I, I think that he does. And, and even in our world. But I wouldn't say that, that all of that is demon possession. But by the way, I, I, like I'm, um, I'm aware that there was a, a time, maybe 30 years ago, in this church where there, were a lot more, there was a lot more emphasis on spiritual warfare uh, in our congregation, I think. Uh, than there is now. People were quite concerned about this. Maybe uh, in the days of an Eric Nyros or something, people were really uh, concerned about these things, maybe at a level that we haven't been on. And it, there might be really good reason for us to be more open to all of that than what we oftentimes are. And when I say open, I don't mean accepting of it, obviously. I mean just open to the idea that it exists and that we need to somehow stand against it. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. I and I think that's it's reasonable to to ask the question. I think pretty difficult to prove, but but reasonable to ask the question for sure. And there are things. I mean, I've heard about different incidences and things happening even in our society where you think, "Wow, what was going on there?" Okay. Now, to get back to your question about indwelling and infilling, like I would say that the Spirit dwell indwells us, that God sends His Spirit to come and be with us, and that He takes up residence in our lives. But I don't think that just because the Spirit has indwelled us that it means that we're constantly filled. And Paul's pretty clear that, that there is uh, opportunity for us to be filled more or less with the presence of the Spirit's activity in our lives, even though I think His residence in us is secure. So I, I come to Christ, and the Spirit enters into my life. But the influence that He has in my life can be less or more, and that's where I would talk about filling or not filling. But I wouldn't speak in terms of dwelling and indwelling, or sorry, dwelling and not dwelling. When you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. The question then is, do you allow him to live in you um, with all his power the way that he wants to? And I think that's the question of filling. Okay? Yeah, the notion that when the Spirit's in you, then you become, in fact, effective, for sure. Yeah. Does it, Mana, does that address address what you were talking about? Yes. Right. If you would have said we have a problem with indwelling, I would have said, well, I'm not sure. But infilling, I would agree. Yeah. Well, interestingly enough, one of the things that this section does is it gives a, gives a whole list of things that Peter is saying should be part of who we are, which resembles very closely, Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit. So he says in verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and then knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. You'll notice that in this particular list, love comes at the end, where with Paul's list, it comes at the beginning. And the lists are not perfect, and he doesn't call it specifically fruit of the Spirit here, but really, that's what this is. It's the fruit of the Spirit working in a person's life, and and creating this new man, transforming us. And notice how important it is that there is a process of growth that takes place. It's kind of like a bridging. A bridging? How, how do you mean, Del? Well, you get over one bridge okay. and move on to the next. Right, yeah. But I find it interesting how he kind of does that. You get this, and then you go to this. Right. But I didn't get to write it. <laughs> yeah. And I wouldn't have bridged it. I would have just used, you know, the great characteristics. Yeah. Yeah, they are great characteristics. And I, and I don't know that there is something um, 
sacrosanct about the order so that if one did end up coming first, again, Paul puts them in a different kind of order if we're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit and puts love first. So I don't know that, that the order is absolutely crucial, but there is a kind of ascendancy here, building one on another so that we develop different elements to our character, and then through the Spirit, other things get added on to complete the picture. And again, you don't start at the beginning possessing all of these things. But through time, God develops them in us so that hopefully by the end of a person's life, we can say, that person is, is wise. Well, how's that wisdom reflected? Well, it's, it's reflected in all those years of building these traits to their character that have slowly added on and they've become the person that they are. So there is that fruit of the divine nature that needs to be uh, certainly expressed in, in the character that we live out. Which means that there is, in fact, a growing lifestyle. Specifically, Peter talks about in terms of our knowledge of Christ, that knowledge of Christ does something to us with respect to growth. Uh, The way that Paul would put this in Ephesians 4 is that we grow up into the head. We grow up into Christ. And so we're constantly growing to become more like him, his example, the model that he is, but then just our knowledge, depth of the knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is, that itself produces growth and changes something about us. The more we understand who Jesus is, and then the more that we know him personally, just the fact that when we know Jesus personally, he's going to be working in us to transform us and change us and make us more what God wants us to be. Um, knowing that we are forgiven is directly related to our growth. And again, that's something that we can't let go of. We're going to talk again about that in the second service, some that we did in the first. That just when we understand what it is that Jesus has done on the cross, uh, it, it is not something to be let go of because it's so transforming, this understanding of what it is that Jesus has done for us. It, it frees us in a way that nothing else can. And then he talks about confirming the calling and election in Christ. And he wants us to confirm it. He wants this election to be sure. And there's all kinds of questions about election and calling and all of that. I'm convinced that Jesus uh, doesn't call individual people to faith and then individually leave some people not called. Uh, I, I think that we're called. I think that actually through the gospel, all human beings are called by the gospel to faith. Some choose not to come to, to faith, but I think actually that everyone is called. Um, and then the calling takes place, and there is a special election that takes place because we've come to Jesus. Um, I, I would say when I read Ephesians chapter 1, where it talks about the election there, that the election is actually talking about Christ being elected as the Savior of the world, as opposed to individual people being elected, with some being elected to salvation, some being elected to damnation. So I'm not a double predestination kind of person, uh, the way a Calvinist would be when it comes to talking about calling and election. I'm quite convinced that the calling is something that we all can receive in Jesus, and some people uh, simply don't accept it. Mark. I've got, got side questions to all this. Do you think that people that were born and raised up in the church, in, in family, grown up, have a better advantage of grasping this and an easier time of doing this than a person that has grown up in the church? No, no. I don't. Um, it may be that they have an easier time having that just be part of them and come to faith, but there's just no reason why a person who who has not grown in the, up in the faith can't grasp these ideas and get them firmly planted in their heart. In fact, I would say that sometimes the person who has not been raised in the church 
and has had an experience of sin in a way that sometimes people raised in the church have not had, better understand what it means to be saved by grace and to be forgiven because they've come out of the world and out of their sinfulness and now, you know, just have so much to be grateful for. Lillian. So I have known of, of uh, people who talk about being drawn to Christ. Right. And they use, there's a scripture, and I can't remember where it is, that, you know, there's no point in trying to teach the gospel because Christ will draw you. Right. So, and then that, ought to, you know, so... You know, going out and trying to to convert others is is a is a futile thing. Right. So it'll automatically happen because. Right. How do you? Yeah, she's asking the question. She's saying that that some people would say that we are drawn by God, by the Holy Spirit, to Christ, and so there there might even be instances where we wouldn't even want to evangelize because it's God's role to do that and not ours. And I would say it was interesting the way that you use that, the way you phrase that, because I think it is in fact the gospel that draws. And so you said we we wouldn't go share the gospel or don't need to go share the gospel because the Holy Spirit's job is going is to bring them not us in preaching the gospel. But I think scripture makes it really clear that it's the gospel that actually calls people. And so we do need to proclaim the gospel because it's through the gospel that people are called. And every time someone hears the gospel, that's a chance for them to come and, and to be called. And again, people have a chance to say no to that, but they're called through the gospel. Okay, we got as far as verse 11 or so, which is what I expected. Thanks, everybody.